Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Coffee Clutch. This is Marianne Russo. I want to acknowledge my co-hosts tonight who will be on the Twitter Tweet Chat, Chuck Wally and Mae Wilkinson. The Tweet Chat is open for you to listen to the interview and interact with others to talk about um, our guest. Tonight, we have Michael Buchholz. I am so excited. Michael is a multi-platinum music producer, a writer, performer, and arranger. He is the founder of the Aid for Autistic Children Foundation. He is himself an adult living on the spectrum, and he is one of the most genuine men I have ever had the pleasure to speak to. Uh, The intro intro you just heard um, is his arrangement of Who Loves You, sung by Cheryl Boyd, and it will be featured in the incredible movie, The United States of Autism. I'm going to play that for you. I gave you a little tease. I'm going to play you the whole song at the end of the interview. what can I say? This is the real deal. Mr. Michael Bulkholtz, thank you for joining me. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Wow, I don't even... Uh, who was that guy you were just talking about? I have no idea. <laughs> don't tell anybody. <laughs> okay, just to preface the interview, Michael and I have spoke a few times, and we're very comfortable. <laughs> um, you know, I hardly know where to begin with this interview. You know, you have such an interesting life. So I guess we're going to start at the beginning. So, you know, why don't you tell us first, what was the young Michael Buchholz like? What was your family like? What was your upbringing like? Wow. Um, the, the young Michael Buchholz, uh, from what I understand, my, my mom has told me that uh, all of us actually were obedient kids. Uh, we pretty much stuck to the things that we loved. I, I was a music person, and that kind of permeated the rest of the family in lots of different ways. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I kind of felt like a uh, a little adult, uh, and I always responded that way. And, and my mom noticed that uh, that was kind of a part of my personality. I was very, you know, stoic when it came to dealing with other adults. I, I, I expected them to respect me as an adult, and I was just a little tiny person. <laughs> so uh, I was always that way. I was always that way. And uh, uh, I think I started uh, really a- adopting a-, a desire to do music uh, when I saw a guitar hanging on my uh, older brother's wall, and I wanted to learn how to play, and my father demanded that uh, we learn how to read music if we wanted to play, to be serious about it. And so I took up clarinet, learned how to read music a little bit, and from then on I just continued to uh, play music. And uh, we wound up having a band later on that my mom was the quintessential band mom of. And uh, it led to me eventually becoming part of the music industry years later. You know, it's it's amazing. Is there other are there other people? You have siblings that also have uh, musical abilities. Now it, it's it's interesting. My older brother, I think, in my personal opinion, my, and actually my professional opinion, is, is the best guitarist I've ever heard in my life. Uh, he is very talented in some other areas. He's an exceptional um, graphics artist. Uh, uh, exceptional. He can outdraw any. Marvel comic artist that I know of. Um, he also is uh, a great mind when it comes to, has a great mind when it comes to electronics and things of that nature. So I, I think he's fa- fascinating. My youngest brother, who also is very good with music and composition, he's more of a DJ, but kind of a high tech DJ, if you will. And uh, he's the guy who actually. Uh, helps set up and uh, create the website, uh, our website that we use. Uh, he is the, the guy who hosts it and takes care of it and corrects it when there are problems. <laughs> and, it's a family uh, he, affair. He, That's nice. Yeah, and he, he's, he's fantastic. I think he's one of the smartest technical people I've ever known. 
and my sister uh, is also very good with uh, web design and some other things. So we got a pretty pretty good uh, group of folks there. And by the way, uh, one other person, my father, who uh, we all discovered was on the spectrum as well, uh, is, is a genius. He taught college for many years, uh, you know, no formal degree or anything. He was just asked to do it, and he did it uh, for 16 years and uh, taught a lot of people electronics and math and other types of technical things. And uh, he's he's a fascinating person. As a matter of fact, I'm still trying to catch up to, to be him. That's that's what I'm going for. That's uh, <laughs> Isn't that what every parent – I mean, that's like every parent's dream to hear that. You know, you were diagnosed um, later in life. How old were you when you got diagnosed? I forgot what you had told I me. I was diagnosed at 43. 43. So now 43. when you were – when you were a kid, I mean, you know, what what brought about your looking for a diagnosis? I mean, what differences did you have that made you curious? I don't know if it was when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I really felt like I was by myself. I, I felt very much like whatever I was learning, I could learn it. Anything that was put in front of me, I could pick it up. And, and I frequently never did homework because I always knew what, the result should be. And so I always did my homework at school or I did it, you know, before I left for school. Um, it was always an easy thing for me to pick up what, what the work was. So I always felt like I was kind of out of place and not where I needed to be. And uh, it wasn't until later on, after many comments over the years from either associates or workmates or people saying, man, you're kind of strange and you're an oddball and a real geeky person and, you know, just all the, you know, mythical kinds of things people call you when they think you're strange. And uh, and I, I just, you know, thought that it was just who I was. It didn't affect me in any real way until um, my mother uh, came to that conclusion after, I think, uh, if I'm correct, reading uh, Temple Grandin's mother's book about her experience uh, raising Temple. And that was when she finally had a light bulb moment and went, that's it. That's the way my kids have been acting their entire lives. (laughs) And that's when she got us together. I think it was around uh, early 1993 when I came back from California. She got us all together and she put us all on tape and said, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about this and, and put this on tape. Uh, for posterity's sake, because this is a breakthrough. This is an amazing way for me to finally communicate with all of you, because she really felt like the oddball out, unable to communicate with us. So that's that's right. the time when it started. I think I was 28 at that time, and that's the moment from there that I said, you know, it might be worth looking into. Yeah, and that says a lot about your parents, because the fact that, um, you know, you you were on the the spectrum and that you were able to be, you know, even though you said you had, you know, the, uh, some differences, um, that, you, that you were able to not really have many struggles. Well, um, I, you know, I the, think way that, I, the way I put it no, is ahead. that, well, the way I put it is my mom uh, said that she, she never got the memo, you know, uh, and, <laughs> and because she never, I mean, because she never got the memo, we didn't get the, you know, this, okay, this is what you are, and so let's help you try to overcome this thing that you've been labeled. Not not having the label was the best thing for us, uh, just as kids, just as human beings. It was a, it was a right. good thing to not feel like I'm, I'm some oddball from the get-go. Uh, it, it was okay for somebody to say, okay, you're a little strange. Well, that's okay. I, I, I don't mind being a little strange because that's just me. And so it was that kind of not knowing, knowing that helped because she knew that she couldn't communicate with us the way she wanted to because she was trying to do the traditional mom thing. Right. But aren't, right. aren't all moms trying to do the traditional mom thing? And then that's what she had to turn around. And she, I have to say, she, she did the amazing mental gymnastics to make it happen. And it allowed us to grow up to be the people that, we should be, and uh, and then of course later on discovering uh, 
the reason why we have the thinking processes that we do actually just makes us better. Right, and you know, that just makes me think. I mean, some say that kids with um, autism need to compensate for their differences. And, you know, I often wonder if they really need to compensate, um, you know, to conform to the supposed norms. And, you know, what if, you know, they weren't expected to conform, but if they were allowed to just focus on their gifts like you did without discrimination, you know? Right. I mean, that's, and that's just, exactly right. That's the, it's the perception that there needs to be some type of intervention to make things better for an autistic child because the child's been tagged with a label. So with us not having had that tag, you know, we didn't have that holdback, so to speak. There wasn't that, this need to say, oh, well, look, he's, he's doing this for that reason. You know, it was like, well, he's just strange. You'll you know you'll get past that because the guy's brilliant you know and and so whatever the well that's the difference too you know there's levels yeah. of impairment I mean did you have the social um, deficits as well because a lot I, of kids really struggle yeah. and the thing is is I totally I totally did not enjoy or do well in close groups but here's the one thing that d- did work for me uh, it was good that I was this way because it got me through the military. Uh, while people were dropping out and crying to go back home while they were in boot camp, I was like, hey, this is easy. You know, <laughs> in my head, the, the regimentation was good. You know, this is what you asked me to do, and that's what I'm going to do. Uh, when the you know sergeant looked me in the face and looked me in my eye and said, you know, don't look at me, look past me. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I right. really didn't want well, to look you in the eye. Well, that's the literal thinking. Yeah, I think that's the literal thinking that probably helped you. You know, the, right. you know, there are rules, and that's it. You know. Yeah. So it was never an issue, and, and I, I often felt like, well, you don't have to yell at me. You know, I can. I'm just going to do what you say. <laughs> you know. So, so there were all kinds of things that happened that allowed me to uh, move forward, where other people were held back because their decision was you know, hey, this isn't comfortable for me. And I'm like, well, this is actually exactly what I needed. So right. it was it was kind of interesting. Well, what, before that, what were your teen years like? Because, you know, a lot of people, my, a lot of my, people, um, you know, in Temple, they say, you know, the teen years are just a horror. Well, teen the, years are my, a horror for everybody. Well, yeah, I would have to say that. And I think that was my impression. I, I was already under the impression that maybe the teen years would be rough because most people say that. And so I went by that instead of, you know, deciding that my teen years were really weird. Um, So I never felt like that was out of the ordinary. I just felt like if my teen years were rough or some moment in my teen years was rough, then I needed to figure out how to make it better. I I was always a solution-oriented person. I, I was like, I have to figure out why I'm feeling this way so I can make this better. And actually, my teen years were were kind of packed with some really cool things. I, uh, we we uh, had a motorcycle. Uh, my brothers and I shared one, so uh, I often rode. I still ride. Um, we uh, formed a band, like I mentioned early on, uh, with my mom kind of heading up, uh, you know, the whole uh, situation. And so we were always involved in the community, uh, playing and making music, uh, performing in different places. So. I actually uh, had a pretty good time. I learned how to swim. We had a pool. It was it was actually not bad. <laughs> so I really don't have bad. a whole lot of complaints right. about it. But right. uh, but anytime there was a bad moment, I would try to make it better by understanding it. And you know, I think that's going to bring us to you know talking about. Um, you know, you wanted to talk about the perceptual, judicial, and financial disparities that are still affecting the progress. And, yeah. you know, I think that, um, you know, you, you had a lot of things going on for you at the time. And, you know, as we had discussed, you know, the I watched your video that you wow. spoke about, um, you know, the prejudice, and it was just incredible. Right. So, you okay. know... At that time, you, did you have racial prejudice as well as, you know, being different that you had to deal with? I think when the racial prejudice started, uh, I I wanted to, again, there's that was my, uh, you know, the, most people who are on the spectrum or uh, high-functioning people on the spectrum, most, I'm not going to say all, because we're all different. We all have different personalities. But one of the things that I do 
is a lot of people, I hoard, and what I hoard is information. And I have to always figure out the, why things are happening the way they're happening. And when anytime someone approached me in a way that was derogatory, in a way that was um, hateful, in a way, in a way that was um, judgmental, I always felt like something was wrong with that person. I never felt like I was the reason why they were having a problem. I always, I still feel that to this day, and I have a better understanding of the reasons why people make the decisions they do uh, based on just, you know, general information. But I never felt like someone being mean to me was because of me. I always felt like they were the ones that had some kind of issue. And so when anytime someone did something towards me that was derogatory, negative, a slur, um, I, I always sought to try to just remain calm. I never got agitated about it and and just tried to, and maybe later on just did a little research and tried to figure it out. So um, I, I think I dealt with, that kind of thing uh, in a very passive way. You know, I never let other people's concepts or ideas or judgments of me change the way I actually felt about the person I was. I felt like, hey, I'm, a, I'm an okay person. I'm, that, that person called me that name because they, maybe that's just something that they know. So right. was, you just you, you have such a you know strong will. I mean, it's great because there are children that have strong wills and they use it negatively, and I, you really used it in a positive way. And you know what what a difference. And I think that was in part due to my personality, the way I process things, and the way my mother made the decision to allow us to just try just kind of be the people that we need to be. Yes, she didn't 100% know exactly <laughs> what was going on with mm-hmm. the way we were, we were communicating, uh, but she knew that, you know, these these guys are well-behaved and they seem to be okay, so, you know, they're going to be all right. And it served me, to some degree, pretty good. I, I feel like I was able to stay away from... Um, you know, prison, uh, homelessness, and all these other types of things. Uh, as I was getting, as I was growing up and having to make a way for myself, and I was living in California. I was, I wasn't here in Georgia back, uh, mm-hmm. back in my hometown, so to speak. Um, right. So uh, I had to figure it out. I had to figure out how to get along and how to deal with people and, and do what I had to do. And I felt like I was doing exactly what I needed to do. You know, I really admire all special needs moms and moms, you know, with children on the spectrum, but I have a place in my heart um, for the moms of your mother's generation because they had nothing. You know, that's why I formed the Coffee Clutch because I had very little, you know, 16 years ago when my daughter got sick, and that's why I do what I do to help other parents not go through that. But back then, there was really nothing, and, you know, there was that refrigerator mom label. So I'm so glad you didn't have a diagnosis because I would would never have wanted your mother to feel that way. No. You know, that that was a blessing. Yeah, and and when I read that uh, article about the refrigerator moms, it it was very – it just seemed to be so – Barbaric, just, and a, and right. very barbaric, and, and it right. just it, it just placed something on those moms by saying, you know what? See, this is the reason why your your kids are very you know stoic and you know uh, blunt and all this other stuff because you were so cold with them. And and right. to me that that's just incorrect. And that I think is uh, part of the reason why, even though we can talk about different things. I always include, you know, my mom's viewpoint in a lot of these things because, quite honestly, any time there was some type of a, 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 a issue that I was going through, I always went back to her. We may not have always agreed on everything in, in how 
to go about it. She may have thrown the kitchen sink, you know, at me to try to figure out, you know, is this what you need? But I always took it and examined it. That was the, that's the one thing I really appreciate about how I look at things. I always took every tiny parcel of information and examined it. And I think that's what helped me to kind of finally determine how, how is it that I can be this kind of a person and, and after getting a diagnosis and finding out that I am this kind of a person, what can I do that's helpful to really give something positive back to the autistic community that's a right now thing, something that, that has the potential to, be, to really get out of control, but someone can actually come up with something. And, and, and I think having to deal with uh, racial prejudice, which I know this is going to sound weird to a lot of people, and I know there's a lot of people going to be listening to this, but I, I really think that racial prejudice is a, a big made-up thing, that it, it, it only exists in the minds of the people who are prejudiced. And it's it's created this chasm of issues that causes people to not want to talk to each other because they think that this one is this race and that one is that race. We're all part of one human race. Right. Uh, I right. mean, scientific. Yeah, and sci- scientifically, DNA-wise, we're, we're only like you know, just point this and point that away from each other, and it's mainly due to the fact that some of us have more melanin on our skin than others. And, exactly, and, and, exactly. And, and, it really is in, the, it, it is in the mind of the person. Um, you know, if you have that type of mentality, that judgmental, you know, hateful um, spirit in you, you know, then you can understand it. I mean, I'm curious to hear how um, you find the differences in the um, prejudice, because you've dealt with both. You've dealt with the racial prejudice, and you've dealt with the prejudice of being different. So how were they different for you? Here's what I can say to that. How they're different to me is this. For me, the the racial, uh, and again, I'm putting that word out there because that's the word that everybody understands and gets, Mm -hmm. but the racial part is tough because, number one, you you don't even have a shot. It's 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 oh he's this color or he's this you know ethnicity um, right. or or they're you know wearing a turban or you know whatever it is that that gets that person going that's not you <laughs> that thing is to me the most debilitating because what it does is it shuts off any opportunity for you to say. You know, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an okay guy, and and I'd like to have a job, and you know, I've been fortunate because because of my name. I'll just put it out there. Uh, I, you know, the Michael Buckholz is not a name that is attached to a guy of color for most people, and so when I'm doing something, uh, most people don't know what. They don't know anything else other than the name. And so the name allows me to get beyond a lot of issues and and problems and employment and whatever else is going on, and and that helps me. Um, Right. But when people see me, and and I actually had this happen when I was 13 years old. I'll just give you a quick reference. I was 13 years old. Uh, I applied for a job at at some kind of a, a taco place or something. And uh, put in the application, wrote everything out, rode my bicycle home. I'm 13. I get home. I get a phone call. And the guy's talking to me on the phone, and he's like, hey, you know, I've got this uh, thing. And, oh, wow, you know, you sound like an intelligent guy. You know, what are you into? What are you into? And I'm like, motorcycles. And, of course, I had a motorcycle at the time. And they're like, oh, great, fantastic. That's great. Um, why don't you come in? I, I, I like your thing and you know all right so i go in for the actual interview for the job and the guy literally looks at me and goes who are you (laughs) (laughs) 
And I'm like, I'm the guy that you're interviewing. And they're right. like, what? I haven't changed at all. Right? Yeah, they, they were in shock. And uh, right. he's like, well, you, you sound so, uh, you know, so, you, you sound so, you know, good over the phone. And, you know, you're, you're so well read. And I, I just love that language. You're so well read. Right. And uh, <laughs> like, oh, I'm not supposed to be able to speak. Okay. So that's but that's kind of the thing that happens, and and it and it's a thing that holds back. Now, when it comes to Asperger's or having a diagnosis, it's a totally different situation. Um, first of all, peop- the the first thing people tend to do is think that you are slow. I'm just going to use the word. Mm-hmm. They they automatically think, well, if this person is autistic, then they're slow. There's something wrong with them mentally and emotionally or whatever. And we have, you know, they're, oh, they're going to so lose it. Yeah, all those types of things. And um, that to me is a disservice to anyone who really truly understands the beginnings of the diagnosis back in 1938 by um, Hans Asperger. Mm -hmm. Uh, If anybody has read his 1944 peer-reviewed documents, one of the wonderful quotes I love that he made uh, after, you know, uh, 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 doing this research on 400 children is that he likened autistic children to little professors. Right, genius. He did, yeah, he didn't liken them to, well, you know, they were kind of slow. He right. basically said these are some brilliant kids. They might give their parents some trouble. They might, you know, kind of be boisterous and run around a bit. and They might be a handful, but, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, these kids need uh, some special attention so that they can reach their potential because these are geniuses. And to prove his point, he chose a six-year-old, a six-year-old, and followed that six-year-old through his life, all the way through college. And that six-year-old, at six, determined that Sir Isaac Newton's law was flawed. At six. And, And not only did he determine that, years later, after he was through college and all of that, he proved it. You know, so, so I say all the time, I mean, these kids are not only special in their needs, but they're special in their brilliance. And, you know, that's a lot of the awareness that we have to get out. You know, right. I think a lot, you know, we spoke um, last week, and you, one of the things that that, that really bothers both, both of us is the lack of unity in the autism community itself. I mean, you know, you not only do you have the bias from the outside world and everything else, but, you know, within the community itself, I mean, I, I'm in the... Um, unique position where, um, you know, I get to look, I get to speak to a lot of different um, organizations and a lot of different parents, and I get an inside look at the different support systems. And um, there is nothing like the autism community. And I think that it really comes down to the fact that so many people look at it differently. I mean, there's people like yourself, Temple, Sharon Davenport, John Robison, and, you know, so many others. Um, you know, that give credence to the neurodiversity movement. I mean, you're brilliant, yeah. you're productive, you're pioneers. And, you know, I said to you, and, you know, you got very shy on me, but you're really role models for this generation. And, okay. you know, I can't imagine anyone <laughs> wanting you to be any different than you are. But for a mother who can't yeah. hold her child and can't kiss her child, and the dad that is never going to hear daddy or hear I love you, how can you deny them a desire for a cure? So I think it really comes down to the parents needing to accept and respect each other as well in the autism and I, community. And, and, and you hit the nail on the head. That is the one portion of this whole advocacy that seemed to seemed to have me a little bit flummoxed. I, I I decided that everything that I do and everything that I perform from from the time that I get up in the morning to and go to sleep at night, that it's going to be a positive movement forward. Everything. Move forward. It's got to be positive. And denying a parent or a caregiver, 
mm-hmm. the hope that they can do something to give their child the best possible life is absolutely a non-starter for me. And you, the vast level of impairment have to be taken into consideration. Right. Also. You you can't yeah, you cannot go there. And 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 so in in my estimation, I and and I've even had I've had nonverbal autistic people uh make comments about things that I've said and they're just like, "Mike, you're right on. <laughs> we love mm-hmm. this about what you're saying." And I this is not made up. I I actually am I'm thoroughly enthusiastically amazed at at the human body mind everything and even for people who are nonverbal i'm i'm always in awe of just how much they sense is going on Absolutely. around them uh in 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 the down the earth way that they can communicate once they have a way to communicate and once we uh turn off and shut down every prejudice we have and give them that opportunity to do that and not assume, oh, my goodness, look look at them. They're grunting and doing this, and so, you know, they, then that means they're slow. You know, Actually, you know, Wednesday night we have um... – yeah, I mean, Wednesday night we have Eileen Miller is coming back on, and she wrote the book um, – oh, God, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank on this um, – I can't think of the name of it, but she has a, a nonverbal um, daughter, mm-hmm. and um, she spoke through art, right. and um, sp- oh, speaking through pictures. And ah. I mean, it was just incredible how this little child was just held captive in her body and was so aware of everything going on. And she spoke through pictures. And she's coming back on. She has another book out. But you know, I think you know, with a conservative figure of, you know, one in 110, and it's probably a lot more being diagnosed on the spectrum. You know, right. I think we I think we have people's awareness, but I think, you know, awareness just isn't going to cut it. I mean, awareness also needs to include the fact that, you know, this is a lifelong, you know, very unique journey, that autism does not go away when a child turns into a teen or adult. A lot of people think this is a childhood disorder. Well, and, and, let, me, know, and think, let me say this. And, and, and I'm going to add to that just quickly, and that's you said something that's key, and I applaud you for that because it's not always a popular viewpoint for po- folks to say, well, you know, we need more, you know, more than just awareness. I, I think it's even more than that. I, it's the perception that awareness is enough, and that all the other stuff is just, you know, no. ancillary. You know, when when you're talking about awareness. What are we actually needing to be aware of? And the perception that, like you said, it's just a childhood thing, you folks like me who uh, – and I haven't had a perfect life. I mean, I've, I've been I've had two failed marriages. Um, you know, I, I really don't think I was that great of a father, even though I tried my best. But the, the point is we're, we're doing everything that we know to do, and then when we look back at the reason why we – made the decisions we made and did some of the things we did because we didn't understand the thought process that was part of this diagnosis, we can make our lives better and move forward and actually help some people, even some of the younger kids coming up that are diagnosed, and and stop this perception of people who are autistic look like this, act like this, uh, talk like this. Um, yeah, you're going to find some similarities in gait and when we speak and certain things of that nature. That's something that uh, John Robeson and I talked about when we were talking on the phone. He was like, you sound like me. And I'm like, yeah, you sound like me too. So <laughs> so we we do that kind you of do. thing. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, is that in reality, in reality, we all have very different needs. We all have very different personalities. And right. we shine in our own way. And guess what? We look different. Some of us are Iraqi, some of us are Israeli, some of us are Italian, some of us are this, some of us are that. And I think the messaging, too, is is a little bit one-sided and monolithic. I think there needs to be a messaging, especially that there are adults out there who understand the diagnosis, get that we can be of some assistance to people and of the community, whether it's uh, the 
um, judicial community, the, the uh, legislative community, uh, as well as the healthcare community, whoever it is, education community, we can be helpful. I want right. to be helpful. I actually want to help. And folks are like, hey, you're cool, man. And I'm like, okay, I'm cool and all that, but I actually can help. <laughs> and you know that's I mean then there would be no Silicon Valley. Um you know, you know I'm hoping you're going to join us. We do we do once a year um communicate to educate which is an international um 24 hours we have on every advocate that you could think of for autism around the world comes on Twitter. We have a 24 hour chat and it will just blow your mind because the, it it crosses all barriers. I'm there. And it's just it's just incredible. Oh, you will love it. You know, and I think that, you know, getting back to it, we need to get past we need to get to the next steps. We need to get past the awareness and we have to get to accept acceptance and we have to get there quick. Because the acceptance is what's going to bring the implementation of effective educational and therapeutic plans for all Absolutely. children. And there are a lot of children being lost, they're falling through the cracks. And that's where you're coming in. I mean, you know, there are so many different treatments and options, but it seems, you know, getting them to everyone is the problem. So, you know, let's go on to the Aid for Autism Children Foundation because you're going to make a difference. Well, let me let me say this. That with, with the children, the teens, and even uh, the autistic adults with treatment and education, um, there, there needs to be uh, a delivery that ensures that when people are getting this assistance and help or, or that when people need this assistance and help, that the delivery uh, methods are readily, readily understood. I think awareness is great, like you said, but if people don't understand how they can get this help and this treatment and the kind of education that's available, it, it's not going to do anything to, to uh, help the general population to understand that this is a serious matter. Now, Aid for Autistic Children Foundation, this is this is a crazy story. I was I think I think I was at the bottom of of things just having fallen apart. Um I was I I had uh my second marriage had failed. Right? I am now a single parent, right? I am doing everything that I know to do, but having been in the music industry, uh, I was still trying to do some music things. But it was becoming increasingly difficult to stay within the music uh, industry field because it's very aggressive. It's a very aggressive industry to be in. People are are vying for, you know, the, the whatever it is that you've got. If they feel that you're someone that threatens them, they will try to get rid of you. And that happened twice. Uh, it scared me, it scared my daughter, and as far as I was concerned, I was ready to get out of the business. Uh, my house had been ransacked and my equipment was stolen. I had a recording studio set up, everything, uh, instruments, mm -hmm all gone. Uh, it didn't only happen once. It happened twice. And the second time it happened, it was, it was home invasion style. We weren't home at the time, but uh, people who had done it left bats and other kinds of things that they were intending to use. So I, felt, I figured I was out. I was done with the music industry. But music was my thing. It, it, it really kind of helped me and kind of saved my life, really. It, it allowed me to make eke out some kind of a living uh, since nobody was hiring someone with my <laughs> with my way of looking at things. Uh, so the music industry helped me there. So I tried the regular job route. And every time I went for a regular job, I always did well for a little while. Then the other stuff started to kick in, the prejudice. You know, hey, this guy's really smart, but we really don't want to promote him. We'll promote well. somebody else. And so that happened quite often, and it just left me in a state where I could never fully take care of my daughter the way I, I wanted to and never give her the things that she needed. I'm not talking about things that she wanted. I'm talking about just things that she needed. And, and, and that just made me feel like 
less of a father, less of a man, less of everything. And so it, it, it wasn't always that rosy. Now, when she finally was gone, and I had some time to kind of think and go, wow, what the heck happened? I have no more musical equipment, which is what my life was about. I don't have to raise a child anymore, which is what my life was about. And I was literally fired from a job at a music store, (laughs) which in my head, that would have been the place that I would have done everything that I needed to do. And sure enough, uh, I just said, you need to write a book. Just write a book. And maybe look into this, you know, autism thing. And that's what I did. And I did them both simultaneously. And it took me about eight months to do both. Um, And that's when I came up with the idea for AFE Autistic Children's Foundation. I wanted to help those families that went through some of the things that I might have gone through financially, what my own parents went through financially, um, which were tons of bad times financially and having to restart. Uh, And I saw that I was going through that, and I had to restart. I said, this is a real issue, this restart thing, and, and this and being a part of the autistic community, there's a lot of families that are finding that they have to restart right. or that their children are coming back and they have to regroup. And I said, there needs to be a very real financial thing. And then there's the treatment. Then there's the education. Then there's all these other things that have, that are happening that are very real and parents are giving up opportunities. The autistic uh, adults, in the autistic community are not finding the right kind of work that suits their uh, skills and their a, a level of intensity when it comes to uh, doing certain types of work. I said, this is wrong. Something needs to give. So that's when I came up and with this idea that there should be at least a one-shot opportunity to forgive the circumstance that that family has found themselves into because of the sacrifice that they've had to make and have that debt forgiven or their debts forgiven, the debts that are causing them to not be able to help their children move forward, their teens move forward, or their adult children move forward. And the, and I thought that that was a very real thing. And then guess what happened? It turned into a real thing. Wow. $90 billion. This is, and this is all recent. This was before I came up with this idea. This was very mm-hmm. new, and people were like, yeah, it sounds cool. But then this year there was a study, and it's, it's a fascinating study, $90 billion, U.S. dollars, are being spent for lifetime care for autistic adults, children, you name it just in this country alone. And it's estimated that that number will grow, that figure will grow to $400 billion. That's That's well over, wow. That's, that's staggering, I mean, right. $700 plus billion is our military budget. So right. $400 billion? I mean, that's that's a lot, and it's unsustainable. So I decided that there needed to be at least a public organization that had private funders and uh, corporate uh, entities and, and philanthropists to get involved and say, look, if we do this and start like a trust for these families mm-hmm. and maintain this trust in this with this organization, then we we fund it once. And let and allow these people to start over at least one time, and right. and it you gives know, what people that's it, gonna make. and it gives right. people that freedom. And and here's the neat thing, here's the neat thing about a Autistic Children Foundation. We did it already last year, in December 2010. Uh, actually, it was early on. A family contacted us, and we felt like it was the perfect situation because it was either time to put up or shut up with this organization, and this family had the worst circumstance, the worst circumstance, 
out of Gulfport, Mississippi, lost their home yeah. in Katrina. And they had been uh, the nonverbal team and her mother had the worst circumstances home, on the verge of homelessness, had a major debt that was caused because of the loss of that house. Right. So they were the they were just, stuck. The cost of just yeah. caring for an autistic exactly. child is just exactly. overwhelming. And it was just, I just overwhelming. Want to say, Mike, before you go on, I want to say we are going to be taking your calls. I see some of you on, and we're going to get to you in about five minutes. I'm sorry, Michael. Go ahead. <laughs> but, oh no, no, no. But I'm going to finish this and, and, and let people call in. But in, the bottom line is, is that when we went in, we knew how bad that situation was, and we worked with a faith-based organization, by the way, that knew their situation. And they were even amazed that we were able to do what we claimed we were going to do. And then when we did it and their debts were gone, no more debt, gone, we got it. We, we dealt directly with the creditors. We dealt directly with the municipalities that were holding some of the problems and issues with the, because of the house. And we, we, took, we cleared it all. And, you know, really and, when it comes down to it, you're giving money. You're, you're clearing debt. But what you're giving these people is hope. I mean, and that is what's yeah. going to change their lives. But, and here's the thing. This is not, this is not um, and I use the phrase, uh, windfall. This is not a windfall. This is right. not, oh, my goodness, you're going to get this and that. This is, this is based on what your circumstances are. And, and this is someone who really never had anything. You know, she, she just never really had a whole lot of opportunities, and she was always kind of getting pieces of help from here and from there. And what she really needed was to be empowered, was to say, you know, I can't go and get this program or do this thing to pull me out of this situation because I have this debt here. And this program that wants to get me a house says they can't get me a house because I got this big debt with this big interest on it, and it's just it just continues to grow, and I can't do anything about it. Getting rid of that then opened up, not just not just gave her hope, but it said, guess what? Now you have power. Right. right. You know, and, and, and again, it wasn't the money that gave her the power. It was the freedom from the debt that gave her the power. And so that's what makes this, I think, a beautiful way to say, here's your second chance. Get rid of that thing that's not causing you to have power, and then we will also follow up and make sure that you don't find yourself in that situation again. You know now that this is how this works. Getting into a debt situation that you cannot recover from will mm -hmm. take away your power. As a parent, as someone who's trying to do something really, really good for, their, for your autistic child, period. And that's where you have to stay in your mind. And it's, this thing works for any type of a situation, and that was proof of it. This is the worst case, and for those who fall through the cracks, it's a good thing for them. For families who are uh, who've lost their jobs, this is a good thing for them because the first thing that starts to happen is debt start to pile up. Right. I mean, with these economic yeah. times, everybody in the I mean, there are so many people losing their homes. But families with special needs children, children with autism, particularly it is because so of the case of the they, yes. insurance yes. and the health care, these families are struggling. You are going to have your hands full. But what an unbelievable! You I mean, what an admirable thing. Well, well, we know how to. Well, I know how to implement it now, <laughs> and right. it's a it's a it's a fascinating thing. You know, Mike. Let me take one or two of these callers before I feel that they've been on hold for a while. So let me see. Area code it. seven. Uh, area code seven zero three. You're on the air. Hey, uh, Marianne. Hey, Michael. Uh, Michael, uh, wonderful work. Um, you have a beautiful story, but you have a pretty rough story. So, and you're a really positive person. Is that is your positive outlook something that is innate to your being, or is it something your your mother instilled in you, or did you have to learn it on your own? Wow, um, that was oh, thank you, thank you for the call. Uh, that's loaded, and I have to say it's going to be. Um, I would have to say it's a combination of the two. It's a combination of the kind of personality that I have, which is really kind of blunt. And the other thing was is my mom and my dad and what they instilled in me. Uh, there was always a very spiritual 
um, a focus to the family. And I'm not just saying, you know, uh, spiritual in the sense that, you know, say your prayers and, you know, all of that. There was a very real attention to we must do things in light of the behavior that uh, Jesus Christ kind of did things. Now, with the understanding that we're imperfect human beings, we do the best we can, but I always understand that I'm a, I'm not the I'm not the end of anything, you know. I'm just a, a puny human being, and I get it. And because I get that I'm just a puny human being, and and I'm just really insignificant when it comes to getting anything happening or done, um, you know, I really do care what other people have to say. I do care about how other people really feel about something. Uh, I, I really, and and if I do something that's wrong, I totally beat myself up about it, and and I and I sometimes I don't stop beating myself up about it. I, I really feel like you know what I really am trying to do the best that I can, and I will always do the best that I can action wise, uh, so that things positive can happen, and and, and it is a combination of the I really am driven, in a sense. Uh, in a fearless kind of way, to do the right thing as often as possible in action. Not just say it, but actually to develop something and to put things in place and then say, hey, here it is, and, you know, if I need some help, hey, help me. You know, but but there it is. So great. Thank you. Yeah, Jack, you can stay on with us. You know, you know, it's funny because, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, um, you know, you were saying before that you had a concern about the, that time when you felt like you weren't giving your daughter um, everything that she needed. You know, and my mind was just saying, I mean, you know, if she just got half of your strength and, you know, your compassion, you know, for, for other people, I mean, you know, the Gucci bag was is meaningless, <laughs> you know. So, exactly. I mean, uh, it's really, you know, that it's true. That's the way it is. And, um, well, you know, I, I wanted to also make sure that we, um, before we come, the time runs out, that, you know, that this is an effort where everybody can help you. I mean, you know, I love that you just said that. You just try to do the right thing. You know, like I tell my kids, listen, when I go to bed at night, I put my head on the pillows, and I don't worry about what I did that day. That's how you have to live your life. So, um, you know, how can other people help you with this? foundation okay this is this is relatively relatively simple uh if you go to our website which is uh going to be at www.aacfinc.org or if you just go on the internet go to uh, aid for autistic and when you type in aid for autistic that's the only thing that's going to come up is our website. <laughs> but, and right uh, now the guys, site is down today. I just checked it. The site is oh, down. Oh, you just checked it just now? Book, yeah, I did. Bookmark it. I checked it just before we went on the air. Uh, just bookmark oh, it because it will be back up tomorrow. Oh, yeah, it's down again. It, uh, no, it's up. I just, I'm okay, on it right good. now. Good. It's back up. I don't know what's going on. I, I don't know if somebody just is trying to mess with me. But, <laughs> but it's up. It's up and running, guys. Okay, good. Uh, anyway. Um, but it's good, uh, but go to Aid for Autistic Children Foundation, and on the donation page, there's a couple of ways that you can help right away. Uh, uh, we don't have much, you know, in the way of stuff uh, because, you know, we are just kind of getting started in uh, 2010. In June of 2010, we just got our uh, 501c3, so we, we're official. Uh, but uh, uh, what we are trying to do is, get people to get involved in the smallest way. And what we do is we, we have a pin. We have an AACF pin with a little heart inside the C, which everybody kind of liked. Thank you. And uh, uh, you can get that pin for a $10 donation. Now, obviously the pin doesn't cost $10, but what the $10 goes towards is administrative costs that allow us to actually put together the things that help us to raise the money. So it helps us to put that together. Now, the reason why we went on a maiden voyage to uh, start the program and then implement the program uh, is because we, we really just wanted to see if it would work. And with just a few people getting involved, including uh, Holly Robinson, uh, the Holly Rod Foundation, which we thank 
mm-hmm. profusely uh, for helping us do that. Right. Um, we were able to actually help that family uh, in Mississippi, and this program does work. And with that proof that this that this really is effective, we need to, in earnest, start our program to start helping more people. Now, we're really going to turn it up here locally, but how I ran the numbers, and of course this is the way I think, this is the way I put things together, I'm a numbers person. If we just had, if we just had a a, a third of the boroughs in New York to give $25 one time, we would fully fund this program. <laughs> we would right. fully fund the program. Right. And, 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 and the reason why we can do that is because I sent this plan, and, and I don't know, many people who have 501c3s, you understand how this works. I sent this plan, this program, to the IRS, and we sat down and we discussed it, and this is set up to be a trust. Right. And when the funds go into the trust, you don't touch them. You don't. Exactly. The IRS exactly. knows exactly what's going on. So when you I mean, when this the is funds just, go into this, this Yeah, so when the funds go into this trust, guess how we distribute the funding? Through the interest only of the trust. And it allows us to help families year after year after year. And we've managed, and I'm so happy about this, uh, working with someone here locally to uh, structure it so that we can help at least 125 families annually, forever. It's it's amazing. We're about to run out of time, Michael. That's why I'm trying to just... um, you know, make sure that everyone knows to go to the website. We've posted it on um, – they're doing it on Tweet Chat right now. Um, and it's there. I, we're going to continue to post it. You are on the Coffee Clutch. If you go to thecoffeeclutch.com, you are on our resource page. I am going to be getting my um, my button today. And um, we have some <laughs> questions on Tweet Chat that I want to um, just try to grab. I see I have one here. Um, what aspect of autism has helped you achieve all you've achieved, and what has been something that has held you back? Uh, helped me to achieve is my determination to for precision. I, I need for things to be precise, so I don't give up. Uh, I, I remember I was complained against for being in a recording studio for 30 hours, and somebody said, how in the world can you do that? Uh, because I, I wanted to be precise, and I just don't give up. And I think the thing that's held me back in a lot of cases is me wanting to be precise. <laughs> it's kind of a double-edged sword, <laughs> right. it, you know. Uh, and 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 sometimes life doesn't, you know, always take precision. Sometimes it takes nuance. And and I'm bad with nuance. I'm horrible with it. I'm I'm like a train wreck. I'm like a an elephant, you know, in a in a china shop. And and so that's the one thing that I constantly am aware of. And I make other people aware of it because I'm still not good at perfecting it. I can, I'm still very elephantine, <laughs> if you will. Well, and um, so, yeah. Michael, I can't thank you enough for joining us. And we were going to go into, you know, unless you live under a rock, you know that uh, you know Michael Buckholtz is the, uh, you know, music producer. You've worked with uh, MC Hammer. I mean, I wanted to go into that, but, you know, we had too many other things to talk about. But I really want to thank you. I want you to come back anytime. Definitely join us for Communicate to Educate. You will love it. I would love to. Oh, an honor to have you on. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks, I have a couple of very, very... 60 seconds, quick announcements. Um, As I said, Wednesday night, Eileen Miller uh, will be talking about nonverbal autism. Next Sunday, Mike Royce, the writer-creator of Men of a Certain Age, Everybody Loves Raymond. I don't know if you've watched it, but Men of a Certain Age has a child anxiety storyline that I wrote a review about last year, and Mike is coming on, and we're going to be talking about it. Um, Also... Our res- we have a resource page. Our website is done. We have probably the most comprehensive resource list for special needs families. Take a look. And as I end the show each day, oh, before I do that, Morgan's Wonderland is an amusement park for children and adults with disabilities. It's fully accessible. The summer is here. Google them. You will love it. As I end the show each day, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who?
become an informed, educated parent. Thank you for joining us tonight on the Coffee Clutch. Michael, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.